Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 as we continue our periodic series uh, in uh, this fine epistle. Let me also note that uh, parents are invited to dismiss their children ages 4 to 6 for children's worship training, and they'll return a little later in the service. If you'd like to keep your children with you here, that's fine as well. Uh, as we turn to Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll look together at the first 13 verses. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he has said, They shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Amen. Let us pray. O our Father and our God, we ask now that your word, which has been read, would be opened. We pray that its meaning would be opened and applied to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. You are the one who has spoken so truly to us. And now we ask that you would take that truth and transform who we are in thinking, feeling, and living to the praise of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, Hebrews chapter 4 is all about heaven. This is a chapter in this wonderful Christological epistle which picks our eyes up and lifts them towards what is to come. It points to two great illustrations of heaven found in the Old Testament. The first is the Sabbath day which illustrates heaven. As it says in verse 4, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. 
and God rested on the seventh day from all his work. God worked, and then God rested. Why did he do this? It's not as if he got tired and and he needed a break. No, he did it for our blessing and for our benefit. He wasn't trying to ruin one day out of seven for us by making worldly words and works and recreations a sin, but rather God was in this way blessing us and protecting us. His rest from his work on the the work of creation had a purpose, and its purpose was to ultimately point to heaven, the new heavens and new earth, where we will dwell with him in joy forever. The second illustration is given in verses 8 and 9. Israel's entering the promised land is a snapshot, a picture, a sketch of heaven. They say, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The exodus, the coming out of Egypt by the hand of God for the children of Israel was a wonderful thing, but then they found themselves wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience. Eventually, they did enter the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, and he took them over the edge of the river Jordan, even on dry ground by the miraculous hand of God. And he spoke to them of a true rest yet to come far off in the future. That generation failed to experience all of the rest that we will eventually have. They had just an hors d'oeuvre, just a sampling or a foretaste. But they were called to enter that little bit of rest in the land that God had promised that we might be eager and we might look and long for dwelling with God forever in heaven. But how can we enter heavenly rest? How can we enter the rest of God that he gives us? You know, there's some good reformed and evangelical leaders who think that it's by abstract doctrine that we do so. They're concerned to believe the right things in important matters. And that is good. And that is proper. But the author of the epistle to the Hebrews does not point us to a very complicated theological system it points us to the basis of all of our understanding of the Christian faith and the basis of all of our understanding of heaven. It ends this section of the chapter by pointing us to the very word of God. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirits, the joint and the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He goes on to say that none of us are hidden from the eye of God, but it's the Word of God that is front and center, and the Word of God that is key to doing this surgery on our hearts and lives and pointing our eyes to heaven and helping us walk along the way to His glory in that celestial city. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews tells us that the word of God is how we walk that road to heaven. He first of all tells us that the word of God is alive. Uh, The word of God is not a dead letter printed on a page in a a dusty book tucked away somewhere in in a library. No, 
The Word of God reveals all. The Word of God discerns all. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirits, joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What that means is, is that God knows all about you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows about you from before the beginning of your life when you first took breath. Because indeed, He in His powerful and sovereign decree foreloved you and cared for you, believer. He set His love upon you in His Son, and so He planned out your days in His sovereign way that only He can do. And that Word which He has spoken to us by His Son and by His Son's prophets and apostles, that Word accurately ministers to your heart as you read your Bible, as the Word is read in public worship, as the Word is opened and preached in worship as well. Is it not true that the Lord hits you, that the Lord pokes you, that the Lord touches you and opens you up from the inside as that Word gets from your ears down to your heart? The Lord uses His Word to point out to you things about Himself and even about yourself that you desperately need to hear. The Lord points out to you areas of challenge left in your life. Uh, The Lord points and presses hard against your conscience in matters of sin, such as in the third commandment, which we read earlier. The Lord is good to us in revealing what He knows He doesn't have to speak to us. He doesn't have to give us any word. But yet He tells us the truth about ourselves. And so He is also able by His word to be very discerning in our lives. It's not just that the word is sometimes read and it sometimes hits home. But He plans that kind of spiritual surgery in in your life. He plans in advance for His word to come out and to touch you and change you that you might be more like Jesus. God's Word is said also to convict, piercing us deeply, bringing us grief in the inner man or in the inner woman as we are confronted with how far short we fall of His glory. We ought to hold fast to this foundation of Christian truth To lose a proper doctrine of the Word of God is to potentially lose everything in the Christian faith. God speaks to us, yes, through the realm of creation. He reveals His glory in the clouds and through everything that He has made. We can come to understand some basic things about what God is like. But yet, His plan of salvation, His great covenant of grace... His triune love for us in Christ Jesus our Lord revealed only comes through the Son and through His Word. And so we must learn to trust His Word. We must listen to it and submit to it as it does that mighty and shaking work within us. We're not concerned about abstract matters. We're concerned about real matters, the real difference which God's Word makes really in our hearts and lives. Some years ago, 
My father called me after a general assembly season. Uh, he was still in the denomination in which I grew up, and he called me and he said, well, how did your general assembly go? He was concerned, you see, because uh, his own general assembly was beginning to wander away from the faith. There were ethical problems where the church was no longer willing to call sin, sin. There were theological problems behind those ethical problems where the church was not willing to stand up and speak the whole counsel of God in truth and confidence. He told me that they had changed the name of God at his assembly and wondered if they had done the same thing at ours. And he laughed and said, now isn't that silly? You can't change God's name. It's God's name. It's not our name to change. That's when I learned my dad was a pretty good theologian, even off the cuff. The point here is, is that to stay on the path toward heaven, we must continue to walk in the way of the word. The Lord's voice calls his people out of darkness into light. And the Lord's voice tells us all about himself and about ourselves that we need to know, that we might live our Christian lives to his glory. This preciousness of Scripture, the living and active nature of the Word of God, rather than being a dead letter that's no use to man. This is the great issue of our time. And all the other moral and theological issues that confront us in the church and in society really are but an implication of this heart issue. Will we or will we not listen to the Word of God? You see, it really does matter whether, whether I go down the street and worship in a liberal church that does not believe in inspiration and inerrancy or whether I seek out a Bible-believing church. Oh, the other congregation may be on the right street for your taste. Their building may be bigger. Their power in the community may be more influential. But if they're not standing on the promises of God, something fundamentally is wrong. And there will be a cascade of moral and spiritual problems. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews is reminding us here, as he points our eyes towards heaven, that each of us daily have a choice to make. Will we follow Jesus? Will we hearken to his word? Will we stand upon the promises of his word, living and active, able to change and impact and shape us more and more after His image? Or will we chase after idols? Will we go following shadows and ultimately be disappointed? The doctrine of Scripture is important. And that's why we read it and preach it. That's why we sing it and we pray it. And even... In the fount in the communion table, we see it represented as God has appointed in the sacraments. All of these elements in Christian worship, because God is important, His Word is important, and so we hang on His every word. This is why we read our Bibles daily. You've heard over and, and over again encouragement from this pulpit that you read the Word uh, that you have your Bibles open, that, that you open them and read them each day, that you take what you read to heart, that you consume the very Word of God given to us written in quiet times, in family times, in times perhaps early in the morning for some or late at night for others, that you have 
that occasion on which you get that fireside chat from God where His Word warms you and comforts you, rebukes you and consoles you, that you might live to His glory and even sleep in peace. Oh, especially as evangelical Christians, we should love God and therefore love His Word. But it's not just believing the Bible to be true that gets us to heaven. You know, there are a lot of people that will tell the Gallup Poll organization that they believe the Bible is true. It's not just an abstract idea. It's something that we must take to part. God's Word is amazing, yes. So you should believe it to be true. And the doctrine of Scripture should always be strong and hearty, yes, indeed. And we should always acknowledge that the Bible is living and true and active in our lives. But in this passage, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews also tells us that while the Word of God is alive, some who call themselves Christians sadly are not. Some have fallen from their profession of faith, he tells us. They have fallen from that which they previously confessed. Uh, This is one of those warning passages. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Oh, some Old Testament believers at the time of the Exodus, for example, almost the entire wandering in the wilderness generation, had seen the mighty hand of God, had heard the thundering of the Word of God. They had been shaken and moved by the sights on Sinai. They had seen the Ten Commandments in tablet form. And yet, their hearts did not yearn and long for the true and living God. They fell from their profession, running after idols, rather than finding their comfort in the Lord. And some New Testament believers, as we saw last week, did the same thing as we saw Ananias and Sapphira move away from what God's standard was and go to the length of lying to the Holy Spirit and seeking to deceive the apostles and and gain honor in the church, which was rightly not theirs. Oh, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews is giving us this same warning that we should be afraid of falling short. Now, we don't fall short by not obeying enough to earn our salvation. Salvation cannot be earned by fallen creatures like ourselves. But we fall short by hearing God's good news, but not receiving it with the gift of faith. Verse 2 tells us, For good news came to us just as to them in the Old Testament. But the passage, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Faith is a gift which God gives you. Faith is a gift which He alone can give. But we ought to have it, that which He offers. Offers to us in His Son by having His Son Himself through the free offer of the Gospel. The whole point of the Bible is not an abstract philosophy that we commit ourselves to. It's not even a technical doctrine that it calls us fundamentally to. It calls us fundamentally to God and to the very Son of God and to faith in Him which He alone can give. 
Oh, all who are in Israel are not necessarily of Israel, the word tells us. And so every sober-minded man and woman should at least have a flush of fear past their faith, face, prayerfully wondering whether they too have been like those who have not believed. We fall short by the disobedience of our unbelief. Verse 6 says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Their disobedience was not in trusting God. Their disobedience was not in listening to Him with their heart. Oh, their ears had heard, but their hearts and lives had not. Instead, the author of this great epistle is calling us to be spiritually alive in Christ. We must be united to Christ and so united to His people by faith and by the Holy Spirit if we would live forever with God. He calls us to be diligent before the Lord in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And so the author of the epistle to the Hebrews tells us that we should not be passive, uh, sitting back in our lounge chair, sipping our iced tea with our feet propped up and doing nothing in our Christian lives. No, instead... We should be busy and active. We should be sharing the love of Christ. We should be holding out the good news of the gospel. We should be active in caring for those under our charge, our children, or when they're older, showing honor to our parents. And all along the way, in all of these responsibilities, sowing the gospel and holding up the light of Christ. Oh, we are called by God the Holy Spirit to let Him work in us that we would cooperate with Him rather than resisting Him or quenching Him or pushing Him back. We work out our salvation through fear and trembling. We work because the night is coming. We strain every nerve and serve the Lord in love while there is still time. This means that the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, in calling us not to fall short, not to give up our confession and to be united actively to Christ is calling us never to retire from the Christian faith. You know, we as Christians never do actually retire. We may retire from a certain line of work in which we engage for many years, but He always calls us to something greater and more fundamental, which is work and worship to come to Him every week, uh, to cry out with the congregation His name in praise, to have our hearts come and adore Him from the inside out. That is a labor that we never cease and we never give up through all our days and all of our other covenant responsibilities. Responsibilities within our families and within our congregation. You know, there's someone sitting just down the row from you. Someone sitting next to you and and next to them, and and down the road from them. And, And you have responsibilities toward each and every one. Because the congregation altogether is under the surgery of the Word of God living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And God will work in you so that you become an instrument that He uses in the lives of others, other believers who are near you and need that Word. 
God doesn't send us a social security check so that we don't have to labor spiritually. No, He lets us have the dignity and the privilege of working and cooperating with Him in His kingdom all the days of our lives. And don't mistake me, it's not just physical labor, but it's spiritual labor. It's labor that involves the heavy lifting of prayer. Is it not true that some of the most powerful and important and influential saints in the church are those who can but lift up in prayer to God who is mighty and able to do all things? Oh, the humble of heart are the ones to whom our Lord loves to answer yea and amen in Christ Jesus our Lord. We must all be diligent. Diligent before the Lord and living to His glory. And we should submit to His surgery. We should submit to that change of heart and life that He Himself does within us. Have you ever tried to cut your own hair? You know, when I try that, it always comes out looking fairly silly. And uh, the children here, the cry for help. Shirley, (laughs) can you come and help? The Lord blesses us with the work of His Word and His Holy Spirit. And He does the hair cutting. He does the trimming and the shaping. He takes the hammer and the chisel and He chips away at our lives. He shapes and molds us in the power of His providence, in the power of His Spirit, in ways that we could never begin to get straight. He takes the joys of our life, does He not? He takes those things that delight us and He uses them to teach our hearts how much He cares for us and what a good Heavenly Father He is. He takes those tragedies in our lives, the suffering that we feel and the suffering of even our own kith and kin that we have trouble understanding and He uses it to change our hearts into a Christ-like humility and submission to His perfect providential will. Oh, we fall far short of His glory, but He does not leave us in that lowly estate. He changes us and He sets us on a road of progressive change through all our Christian life to His glory and to His honor So to the end, when we reach the celestial city, we will be ready, fitted, fitted to sit at the glorious marriage feast of the Lamb, to be clothed in His rightness, to shine as the noonday, to give glory forever to Him in the new heavens and new earth. And it all happens by the work of His Word and Spirit, His Word living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We come and give ourselves to Him. And even our giving is something that He gives us. And so with eyes wide open, we must obey from the heart. We should have eyes wide open to the fact that God knows all and is all-powerful. In verse 13, he tells us, No creature is hidden from His sight, 
but all are naked and exposed in the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Here we're reminded that God sees us inside and out. Here we learn that we too should see. We should see ourselves for who we are. We should see Him for the Almighty, all-seeing and knowing and powerful One that He is. And that we should look to Him alone as the One who can do such surgery and change. You know, when you're a kid and you sneak out behind the barn with a little rabbit tobacco, the joy of it all evaporates when you eventually learn that God is there and He's watching every puff. The Lord knows. The Lord sees. The Lord calls us to greater righteousness in Christ as He convicts us, as He enlivens us, as He fills us with joy and the peace of forgiveness. He makes us like His Son in ways that we have such difficulty in comprehending. The hand of that surgeon is swift and sure. The instrument used by that surgeon is not dull, but precise and sharp in its every move within us. There is no detail of your days, no event of your past, or no happening in the future that catches him by surprise or is not under his providential care. Even the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, even the heartbreak that we feel, as those facing another birthday celebration of our nation, in the face of such wanton disobedience on the part of our courts to the holy word and law of God on something as fundamental as marriage. Believer, we are not driven to despair by these things. But we are driven once again to be reminded that the God who knows all and sees all, the God who will judge all and set all things right, that He uses these things in our lives, even the outrageous things of the society around us, as a means of blessing His children and furthering His gospel. You know, when I grew up, there were just some things you didn't talk about. That's not true anymore, you know. We live in a very different world. I used to be able to ride my bike anywhere in town. We go visit my parents back in Aiken, South Carolina, and I would no more let them from out around the block than fly to the moon. And they're 15 and 18. It's a different world. And we might throw our hands up and we might say, well, the world is so changed and, and things are all so wicked and, and everything's going to end and we're just headed to absolute tragedy and there is no hope. But you are here now. You are gathered in this place for a good purpose and reason. Because even when there is heartache and scandal, we come and we worship our God. And even when there is disappointment and disorientation, we can get reoriented and we can get repowered 
by looking to Jesus Christ our Lord, who alone is the sovereign over all the earth. Is he not the king of glory? Does he not have purposes? Purposes very difficult for us to discern at times, but purposes deep and strong and with eternal will behind them. That he will shape and mold us even in the midst of this crucible of the world. And so the tragedy that we hear on the TV or that we read in the newspapers or that we catch in passing online, that tragedy will be turned by God to his glory. Partly maybe by contrast, as he shows the brightness of his righteousness in contrast to the dark wickedness and evil of our generation. But in this does he not give you an opportunity to bear witness to the truth of the word of God, that the moral law of God is still true and sure, that as surely as the third commandment is true, so are the first through the tenth. As surely as the third commandment, which you have repeated earlier, is true, so is the seventh commandment, which teaches us not to commit adultery, but rather to embrace the institution of marriage as God gives purpose and opportunity. And so he calls us away from every worldly and wicked device, but rather to find our joy in him. You, you will get to bear witness to him this next week. You will get to hold up your little light in the midst of a dark world. Not by spiraling down in despair as if you were a hopeless, narcissistic pagan like so many others. But rather by having your eyes lifted to heaven. By looking to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to his heavenly Father. To seeing on the horizon as his prophets and apostles disclose to us the coming new heavens and new earth where all things will be set in proper order, where He will have judged, and His truth will ring from one end of the galaxy to the other and beyond. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews is calling us to lift our eyes towards heaven, to continue to march on by the power of His Word and Spirit, and to not lose heart, but yet be encouraged, because we, even in Christ, have A foretaste, do we not, of the rest that we shall know in full. Does your heart not rest secure in Jesus no matter what the world decides and does? Let us pray.